0: The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. This us just uses this slide to review how far the NC2 might go and what its current limitations might be. And then we'll move on to uh, arrays. Uh, one potential advantage to uh, these sort of microscopic and situ analyses is that imp- if you use a non-destructive visualization, rather than fixing the cells, you actually monitor them real-time, you can sample as basically as quickly as a uh, modern microscopic camera system can monitor on the order of a millisecond. You can obtain a sensitivity on the order of a single molecule of, of uh, fluorescence. Uh, this is very challenging. It requires very small pixel sizes, uh, but it is possible. Um, and it's the basis of some of the sequencing methods that we discussed a couple of uh, classes ago. And so that, so, so that resolution itself is typically on the order of a micron or a quarter of a micron, sort of set by the limit of the optics in terms of, uh, of the diffraction that can typically occur. But you can get below that diffraction limit of 250 nanometers down as low as 10 nanometers by using tricks such as uh, uh, near field optics and, uh, and <coughs> various uh, deconvolution uh, methods. Multiplicity <coughs> we is really the, the greatest limitation of the nc method right now, and it's a, certainly an opportunity for the creative ones in this group. To address, how can we get the multiplicity looking at all of the RNA simultaneously as we can do in, in microarrays, which is essentially a microscopic method as well, um, but still have the spatial uh, advantages of an in situ? This is an unsolved problem. Multiplicity now is typically around one, two, or three colors. The colors can be deconvolved by using uh, bandpass filters. If you use combinations of colors, you can conveniently discriminate the 24 different types of human metaphase chromosomes. Uh, however, this depends, you should note, don't get fooled but into thinking you actually have 24 colors. These are combinations or ratios of colors assuming to be false colored by the computer algorithm, but they depend on non-overlap uh, or of being able to find uh, uh, objects uh, in the visual field and extend them. If where they overlap, you now have mixtures of mixtures, and this no longer is is uh, simply deconvolved. So, for all practical purposes, we're li- we're limited to around four or five colors. So now let's. So those. So in C2, I would not call uh, you know immediately genomics compatible. The systems biology it takes a, a vast number of in C2 experiments to get uh, the kind of comprehensive data you can get out of. Microarray experiments. So let's focus on the kind of experiments, like microarrays, um, that can get us um, full genome scale information, and what are the what are the limitations in quality and uh, for these sort of things. Now we can either lump or split various ways of measuring arrays themselves. The top two items on uh, slide 28 are either. Lump- can be characterized as microarrays might be associated with, uh, you know, sort of for historical reasons, with longer uh, probes, maybe the length of an entire gene or an entire cDNA, messenger RNA, and uh, affimetrics and other uh, oligonucleotide-based methods typically use 25 nucleotide-long oligomers. Typically, the long uh, microarray probes um, are used as single probes, one probe per gene, while the short ones typically have 20 probes per gene. These are not necessary differences. You can imagine various combinations. Another difference is uh, in the long probes, typically you'll do an experiment and control with different colors, and they're mixed together to control for some of the variation in, uh, that might occur in the spotting of the long probes. These are typically spotted mechanically, while the short probes are uh, developed by a, a photochemical method in which 100 mass, uh, of sort of black and white mass, such as you use in, um, in the uh, Silicon Valley for making computer chips, which we introduced in the, in the sequencing technology lecture, these kind of you know, 100 photomass will allow you to make a 25 MER of four possibilities per, per base. And you'll make, t- say, 20 of these scattered along the gene, and a mismatch control for each of those 20 perfect matches, TM and MM uh, abbreviations. And those mismatch controls help you get at the, the, the possible cross hybridization by related sequences or even distantly related sequences. And, uh, and, and what you typically do is subtract the mismatch controls from the perfect matches and then average across all 20 of them or some statistically good sampling of those 20. Okay, so you typically do ratios for the, for the long probes, and you try to get absolute amounts from the short probes. And then there are two wildly different methods in the bottom of this slide. These are called uh, SAGE, standing for Serial Analysis of Gene Expression, and MPSS, uh, an acronym for uh, a highly parallel bead-based method both of them essentially sequence, determine the sequence of somewhere between 14 and 22 nucleotides. This is the sort of the minimum length sequence that's, that's uh, often, but not always, sufficient to identify an RNA molecule. These are looking, you're, you're basically counting individual RNA molecules with a tag that's just long enough to be able to recognize it in a database. At a 14-mer, you can recognize it in, say, a human cDNA database, but it's not unique enough to identify it in a human genomic database. The 22-mer is large enough to get uh, an acceptable uh, rate of false positive positive, false negatives in a human um, genomic library. So that's kind of the range which you can do this. And it's just, you need to, you, people tend to take shorter tags because the cost goes up with the length of the tag. And so these were convenient, at uh, least short tags. So the top top ones you get, Uh, quantitation by integration of the the fluorescent signals and the bottom two you get quantitation by counting um, individual tags. The bottom two methods have the opportunity for discovery, while the top two you basically can quantitate any gene or or segment of the the genome that you uh, care to put on the array, but you won't necessarily discover anything outside of those features. So these are, these are four of the, of the key methods that are used for quantitating RNAs right now on a genome scale um, where you'll do hopefully multiple experiments for each type. Now let's just zoom in a little bit more so you can have appreciation for where some of those systematic and random errors might creep in to these kind of experiments. And I'll just arbitrarily use the, uh, the 25-mer oligonucleotide probe arrays as an example for the long, uh, long arrays, the microarrays, you might have, um, say, 1,000 nucleotide long probes. You might have 10,000 of them on a class slide about this big. Um, with the photolithography, you can have a, more like a closer to a million features in a, in a square centimeter. And in each of those features, each of those million positions on the array, in the square array, you, you will have maybe a uh, 10 to the 5th, 10 to the 6th molecules all identical in position 1, and then a new set of 10 to the 6th molecules in position 2 uh, all aimed at a different R, uh, different RNA or different part of an RNA. So each of those probe cells it, um, is ready to accept fluorescently labeled or or using biotin as an intermediate to, in order to get fluorescence, so you take your RNA and you directly biotinylate it or you uh, make a cDNA copy, or in one way or another, you introduce a fluorescent or a biotin bio- bio- molecule into a copy of your RNA, and then you apply that to this chip and they will bind uh, kinetically, um, and the more uh, the, the mass action that you get from uh, from the original RNA, the, 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 RNAs that are most abundant will give, will result in the largest number of biotins or fluorescent molecules on the array in a given element. Here an indirect conjugate with a fluorescent streptavidin uh, striptavit and biotin is covalently attached to striptavit. And you get a fluorescent signal, which you quantitate, which tells you the amount of, uh, of original messenger RNA. The, if you have 20 different oligonucleotides per gene, you can scatter those about the array or you can have them in lines. This tends to be what back from when they had them in, in lines. You get the streakiness there. Now, one of the first things you want to do, much of the software from the companies is set up to, on the assumption that you will only do the experiment once. Now, this is not... Uh, this may have been appealing in the early days from a cost standpoint, but it's not really cost effective in that you will make mistakes and you will uh, draw incorrect conclusions that will you to go back. But this is an example of an early experiment to establish the reproducibility from one experiment to another, uh, possibly to reassure people that they didn't need to repeat the experiment. Uh, But in any case, this is the sort of thing that is now commonly done in order to assess that your experiments are indeed reproducible. Uh, And what you expect from this as you go along the horizontal axis um, uh, towards higher and higher uh, copies per cell, um, going off to the right, or going up uh, on the vertical axis, then when you get high copies per cell, then you expect there to be very close similarity uh, in the two measures from two different the experiments on a different days. And then as you get to very rare transcripts, you expect the, the various sources of noise in the experiment to start to dominate this, the light scattering in the uh, array, the background fluorescence of the glass, the uh, nonspecific cross-hybridization between different RNAs start to dominate over the true signal because the true signal is going down and all those background signals are staying constant. So you start to get spread at low number, copy numbers per cell. You can see a huge fraction of the, of the RNAs in the yeast cells are present in a single copy, as say one, less, one or less fewer RNAs per cell. Now this can either indicate that uh, that most of the RNAs in the cell are, are, are not physiologically significant, or it could indicate that all it takes is a small burst of one or a few molecules of RNA to produce an even larger burst of proteins and an even larger burst of activities of those proteins. So you get this amplification. And so the stochastics that we'll study in the systems biology part of this becomes a a more significant consideration. So looking at small, you know, uh, one molecule per cell, it's important to, to start thinking about what the implications of that might be for the systems biology and and asking, you know, can we accurately measure it down there and do we believe that it's biologically significant. Now there's a whole variety of microarray data analyses ranging from the very uh, hardware oriented um, first data acquisition modules all the way up through um, analyzing single array data at a statist- you know, statistical level, to multiple uh, related experiments, such as the one we showed in the previous slide, all the way up to clustering ex- uh, multiple examples from multiple different conditions to see um, to start asking uh, the biological questions about why RNAs go up and down together. Uh, for the, for the sort of intermediate analyses where, t- where we'll be talking today, as introductory uh, issues of the, you know data analysis, I'll illustrate DCHIP and a couple of other tools that indicate how reproducible uh, experiments can be and the kind of systematic errors that can creep in. The reproducibility helps you, uh, by repeating, helps you reduce the random errors. And uh, here are four papers recently that talk about um, measurements from multiple uh, measures from the same experiment or multiple measures by using two completely different microarray technologies, and um, I urge you to take a look at these. Um, when we compare two distributions from microarray experiments, you can think of these. These are going to be, even if they're not perfectly normal distributions, they're going to be roughly bell-shaped first. So let's say that this is experiment one and this is experiment two. You say, oh, they look the same. This is experiment one under condition one. This is under condition two. Okay, now they look different. But how do you quantitate that? And the way you ask that is the, the means of those two roughly bell-shaped distributions are far apart from one another. How far apart? Well, they're, more, they're farther apart from one another than the width of the distributions individually. And that, that, the, the, the distance between them you can think of as the mean of the difference of the distributions. Um, and then the, the width is a, is a measure of the uh, root mean square standard deviation. So it's the combined width of the two. If One of them is wide and the other one is narrow. You have to have some way of combining those. So that's what that's sometimes called the student t-test. And the t-statistic itself is simply the mean over the standard deviation. In other words, how many standard deviation widths apart are these two means. Or if you take the mean of the difference, take the distribution of the difference, then you want that, your null hypothesis H0 here on slide 33 is the null hypothesis is the mean value of the difference is zero. There's no difference between the two distributions. If you can uh, rule that out, um, then that would be the point of this test. So you can think how many widths apart are are the means of these two distributions? Now, that's, this requires that, that, that they actually, the distribution would be very close to normal, not distinguishable from normal distribution with all its properties. Um, if you are in serious doubt or can prove that they're not normal, then you should go to a non-parametric. Normal means it's parametric. it has a mean and standard deviation that, that characterize it well, um, then you can use a non-parametric. Whenever you see the word ranks, that's a tip off that you're going into something where you're making fewer assumptions this has lower power, that means you might miss some significant differences. But on the other hand, it, uh, if you can convince yourself with the Wilcoxon and match pairs sign ranks test, um, then you don't need to worry about whether it's normally distributed. In any case, we're, go- we're gonna look at some uh, distributions not sh- not, uh, and, and ask informally whether uh, these are the same distribution or different. Yes. Um, On those two different types of tests that you mentioned, in general, one of the problems that everybody who is dealing with this kind of um, uh, analysis is facing is that you're applying the the details or the production test to. So the question is, uh, how, how, how do you deal with the, the uh, multiple hypothesis testing? And this basically is exactly the same answer that, that we would have given in the last uh, lecture on uh, multiple hypothesis testing and genotyping. Um, if, if you apply exactly the same, it's a very good question, very appropriate here. Um, Just as before, where you would have multiple different uh, phenotype-genotype combinations that you might want to test, essentially testing every possible single nucleotide polymorphism or combination in the genome, Uh, to a a first approximation, whatever your your significance is, um, it needs to be that much more significant if you have that many hypotheses. The, then, the, then, then you're only, if you either have to improve your data, that, that, that make, makes, allows you to test more hypotheses, or you need to reduce the hypothesis uh, the number at, at the outset by having a, a sharp biological uh, question at the beginning. It's an excellent question, but there's no magic wand that we, except those two that I know of. Okay, so here's some examples of independent experiments. Now, when someone says an independent experiment, you have to be clear about is it, was it uh, that the same RNA sample uh, split and, uh, and then labeled independently? That's really not an independent experiment. On the other hand, you could take two completely, where you repeated the best of an independent experiment. Uh, if, if your objective is to ask how reproducible is the entire biological phenomenon, you should go back as early in the, in, as possible, make a, a new cell line, uh, you know, this, try to get the conditions exactly the same, but completely independently executed, possibly by different researchers in different uh, laboratories. In that, in that extreme, you expect to have more scatter. Here, these are the regression lines. The R-squared is the, the number that pops out uh, as an indication of deviation from the linear, just like the linear correlation coefficient, which is basically a squared term. And, uh, and you can see that as you instead of splitting one sample and doing kind of the trivial differential labeling, if you have more independent samples, you get more scatter and uh, a lower figure of merit for the regression model. Okay. Now, what are the guidelines for quanti- what are some of the considerations in RNA quantitation? I think we've touched upon this before, but I just want to drive it home that some people will say, I'm only going to look at things that are uh, more, more than a threefold effect. This is a, sort of the ratio uh, limits that you might perceive in the early RNA uh, chip experiments. But I think we're getting better at it, and the, the biological motivation is high. We've seen that human trisomies, where you just have a 1.5-fold uh, increase in dosage, every single one of them has a huge phenotypic consequence. Many of them result in lethality. Uh, it's very imp- – sh- we should set as a goal to be able to monitor m- most of the RNAs uh, of, of biological significance down to this sort of 1.5-fold effect, which ha- can have these dramatic uh, implications. We mentioned that oligonucleotides um, uh, might be able to get more of them per gene. How can we – how can we utilize this? Not only the number that we can get, but their specificity. If you have a gene link uh, oligonucleotide or, or cDNA, then you're going to pick up not only that, the gene of interest, but every related gene, all the alternative splice forms, all the very, very close family members. So with oligonucleotides, you can then go and target individual splice forms, but then when you when you apply your, your algorithms, you have to be careful not to lump them all together as if it's one gene. You have to say, okay, this is splice form number one, number two. And just having oligonucleotides aimed at particular exons is not sufficient to tell you which uh, exons are in cysts, in particular RNAs. You could have uh, present in the population exons 1, 2, 4, 6, 12, (laughs) and so forth, but you don't know whether 1 and 12 are on the same molecule ever. That requires a more specialized method, uh, possibly high-throughput method. Uh, If you – there is another set of economic forces pushing towards just doing a subset of the genome, uh, just like doing a uh, not repeating the experiment, it's, it, you probably don't want to give into these economic forces unless you absolutely have to. Because if one person studies, uh, uh, you know, cancer <coughs> subset, another studies a hemat- uh, blood-related subset, and another one studies, you know, these these uh, little pieces of the genome, then when they want to pool their data in order to ask questions about, well, what genes are clustered together because they're in they're in proliferative cells, and which ones cluster together because they're in this developmental stage or another, they can't do it because they don't share enough genes on their arrays to, to do this meta-analysis. So that's a, that's a consideration when you're in the experimental design phase. And hopefully computational biologists are involved not only in the interpretation of the data, but in the design of the experiments as well. Here's yet another way of looking at the variation that you have in the experiment. We're introducing I think the coefficient of variation here, which is simply the standard deviation normalized to the mean, so you can you can just phrase it. You can it's a way of sharing uh, in, in a generic sense how much variation you have. So you can say it's the coefficient of variation is say 10%, and that's that's independent of whether you're measuring uh, what your units are measuring, unitless. And so what we have is. Uh, on the horizontal axis, x-axis here, number of messenger RNAs per cell, and in the vertical axis, the coefficient of variation. And you can see that when you uh, when you get up, um, above, say, 20% uh, coefficient of variation, you start getting less uh, uh, um, less trustworthy. Because here we've used the algorithms that are built into the asymmetric software for asking whether it thinks an RNA is present or not, if the intensity is very low, and a variety of other criteria, For a single experiment, you can ask, if it, it will classify whether it thinks the RNA is present or not. But if you use a large number of different experiments, each of these dots being a different uh, RNA, uh, you use a large number of experiments you can now beat the, the uh, you know company software because it, it's made the assumption that you're just doing one experiment, and so here in the dark blue are examples where in three experiments all three experiments was called present one by one. But uh, you can see that uh, even with cases where it's not called present in any of the three experiments, these magenta ones, you can st- you can still find very. Uh, high reproducibility, that's a very low coefficient of variation down around 10 percent. There's some pink dots all in this uh, region around 10 percent. And these are just as reliable as the blue dots. Even though they're not called present by the software, collectively they're they're very reproducible and therefore they're trustworthy. So actually, uh, reproducing your experiment is not just something you do, uh, you you know, to uh, to appease uh, nature and, and lower your statistical noise, it actually allows you to get data for RNAs that otherwise might be inaccessible. Um, so there's, a, there's immediate uh, gratification there even at the slight expense. So now let's broaden uh, back out a little bit on, the, on the, a number of different methods and their, their advantages and disadvantages. Each one has a set of advantages. We've already talked about two of them, which is the um, immobilized genes labeled RNA scenario. That's basically the microarrays or chips. Uh, and the advantage here is that you can, ver- in a very high throughput manu- ma- manner, you can manufacture large numbers of these, and you can get high multiplicity, all the, gene, all the RNAs that we know of monitored simultaneously. In C2, we've also talked about the, the major advantage is retaining the spatial relationships. <coughs> Some of these other methods, uh, if you, instead of immobilizing the probes on, the, on a solid surface, you immobilize the RNAs, and then one by one you label the probes, uh, this will allow you uh, to first, say, uh, separate the entire transcriptome burst of RNAs in electrophoretic separation. <laughs> and so in a highly parallel ma- method, you've now immobilize them after they've been separated by size. So if you want to know the size of the RNA, which is a big hint as to, uh, you know, its exon composition and its and its uh, and so on. Uh, measuring the size of RNA is this is one of the few ways to do it. You can really it's very hard to do with arrays or in cDNA. Okay. Uh, if, on the other hand, you want you want sensitivity, where well, you want to really detect at the noise level, which say for mammalian vertebrate RNAs is around 10 to the minus 4 copies per cell. That's the level at which if you look for almost any kind of, any part of the genome, any kind of RNA, even things that shouldn't be expressed, you will find them down at 10 to the minus 4 per cell. That probably is not biologically significant, but it's, it's a biological fact. Um, getting down to that level, or if you have a mixed tissue, and you want to detect uh, one part in 10 to the 10th, you might have 5 times 10 to the 5th messenger RNAs per cell, but if you have 10 to the 5th cells, and then, uh, you know, a single copy messenger RNA would be down at 10 to the minus 10. Anyway, that's feasible with uh, reverse transcriptase quantitative reverse transcriptase PCR. And it is the it is standard by which all the others have, uh, can barely uh, match. Uh, reporter constructs are something we, we did not consider generally a high-throughput method, although there are, there are genomic constructs of reporter constructs for entire genome like yeast. Uh, But here, the real advantage of that method is there's no worry of cross-hybridization. Within C2s, with Northerns, with with arrays, there is a chance that if you you probe for RNA-X, it will happen to hybridize, especially if it's present in high abundance, it will happen to hybridize to one of the other ones. But with a reporter construct, we will take a fluorescent protein or a, a luminescent protein and hook it up, the gene in in insist with the gene you're interested in uh, and that will directly or indirectly monitor the expression of your uh, favorite gene, Uh, that has no possibility for cross-hybridization. We talked about uh, the advantages of counting, the disadvantages of course cost, Uh, it allows you to do gene discovery, it doesn't address um, alternative splicing, Here's an example of comparing two of those methods as microarrays were, are, are being introduced. One needs to validate them to ask whether you have, whether you're measuring one RNA or multiple RNAs of different sizes, to ask whether quantitating a, a northern blot correlates with quantitating an array. And here you can see a fairly acceptable um, uh, linear relationship between the two quantitative measures. And this has been played out uh, many times The opportunity that you have when you make an array, we said that that SAGE and MPSS allow you to do discovery. But another uh, way of doing it is putting down lots of oligonucleotides, even oligonucleotides in regions where your genome annotation may not have indicated that there's a gene. So you can see here the bottom 60% of this array was in so-called non-protein coding regions. And you can just see what you get when you, when you do that. It doesn't cost that much more to put down um, some of these non-coding regions. And you can ask uh, in these untranslated regions whether there are maybe anti RNAs that, that will overlap in the translated regions. Or You can look for DNA-protein interactions in certain kinds of experiments. And you can look for RNA-fine structure. Where does the gene actually end? You may annotate that the RNA ends here, but you need ways of uh, actually measuring that. So there's a lot of uses for uh, nucleic acid probes in so-called non-protein coding regions, which can range from 12% of the genome in simple prokaryotes to up to 98% of the genome in humans. So what are the sources of random systematic errors? We have secondary structure that we talked about at the beginning uh, of this lecture, can cause different parts of the array to have uh, different hybridization efficiencies. The position on an array can have an effect, for example, poor mixing. Uh, If you're making your array by a non-reproducible method, the amount of target nucleic acid immobilized on the array can vary, and you need to control for that, for example, by having an internal standard. If you have uh, cross-hybridization we've talked about, the unanticipated transcripts you can handle by tiling, by basically putting oligonucleotides throughout the genome. So here's an example of spatial effects. What you do is you spike in known amounts of known RNAs which are present throughout the array. And so these are internally spiked in addition to your unknown fluorescently labeled RNA uh, probes. And you can ask whether you're getting a perfectly uniform uh, edge-to-edge uh, hybridization with a, the with a knowns where you know the answer. And if you're not, if you're getting, uh, you know, peaks and troughs, then you can use these internal standards to calibrate that particular hybridization experiment and correct uh, for this kind of systematic error. This could occur again and again. Here's two different experiments giving roughly similar edge effects. Um, you need to account for these things to avoid that particular source of systematic errors, especially if you've, uh, put all of your oligonucleotides for a particular gene near one another. A better strategy, statistical uh, experimental design, is to put your oligos randomly throughout the array. Here's another one. unanticipated RNAs. Two examples. One, uh, an open reading frame of unknown function, Um, you can sometimes misannotate. If you have two open reading frames on opposite strands, it could be one is used, generally speaking, one is used and one isn't, and you could pick the wrong one. You might pick the big one, and it could be the little one is the one that's actually used, and that's what happened in this case. And another one is, is a so that was a translated RNA that just happened to pick the wrong strand. Here is an untranslated RNA such as the snow RNAs as we saw before. This one is a, a untranslated RNA of um, that was discovered in a so-called intergenic region where um, if you have a statistical test for the goodness, the quality of an of a, of a individual oligonucleotide hybridization, based on, say, its reproducibility or, or its um, uh, relative intensity that you expect, if you have 20 different oligonucleotides all for one gene, and you expect uh, number one typically is stronger than number two, and then you find the case where number one is weaker than number two, then you, you can flag that. You can say, I don't believe that particular spot. And if you color code them all, see, as, see here as white spots, uh, things that don't fit your statistical model for the array hybridization, is the advantage of having a statistical model for the uh, entire process, then you can mark those as, as uh, white, and you can look to see whether they have a... Uh, significant spatial distribution, which they do in this case. They all seem to be clumping at this corner. Now, what could cause that? Well, you know, we've already illustrated there are ways that you can have, uh, you can use internal standards to calibrate. This was not a case where we had uh, poor hybridization efficiency or or strong hybridization efficiency around the edges. This was something where the alignment of the grid is done by these little uh, squares along the edge and the... Computer algorithm that finds these spots was was distracted by this little uh, spot off the side, which is not part of the checkerboard. And uh, once you manually correct that uh, error, now you snap in the, the on the right-hand side of slide 43 is uh, is now the statistical model of this after getting the alignment right. You had here you had been associating the wrong <coughs> oligos with with a particular signal and didn't fit the model. Now it fits the model and you see little scattered uh, strips of gray where you have um, individual genes that you're misbehaving rather than the entire corner of the array. Okay, so now we get to the very interesting interpretation issues where we're using the same kind of information. You have a, a model, a very sophisticated model of how the individual oligos in the array behave. Here, what we do is we take genomic DNA as an example of a fairly equimolar calibration standard. If you take genomic DNA and label it, uh, you expect every segment in the genome to be, e- to be present at the same molarity, with the exception of repetitive elements, which we'll uh, put aside for the moment. And so that means that uh, any place that is... any uh, a ligonucleotide that does not hybridize with the genomic DNA, such as these ones that go close to the baseline here at zero. Uh, remember, this is perfect mass versus mismatch that we're plotting on this. Uh, when you get close to zero for the genomic DNA in black, uh, that means that that really doesn't hybridize well. It's not that it's missing from the genome. It's that it has some secondary structure. So this is the secondary structure that's been a theme through this talk. And then if we – and you can – those, that sort of secondary structure is actually some uh, piece of data that you can do data mining on. You can go through the entire genome, and you can look for secondary structures. And you can ask will those secondary structures depend on uh, what part of the genome is transcribed. Now, here is a messenger RNA. This is one of the few messenger RNAs for which you have a plausible secondary structure. Most secondary structures are on structural RNAs or enzyme-related RNAs, like ribosomal RNAs, transfer RNAs, and so forth. This is a messenger RNA for this gene product, LTP. And uh, if you look where this black arrow is coming from the right-hand side, you'll see a long helix. And that helix is at the three-prime end of the messenger RNA. And it's very well characterized both uh, structurally and functionally. And it's, and it's known to be evolved in at least uh, one important biological process, which is the termination of transcription. When you get close to the end of the RNA, that hairpin will form and it sends a signal to the transcription apparatus to stop. So that is a believable hairpin of known function. And the interesting feature of this microarray is that's one of the places where both the genomic DNA and black and two di- completely different RNA samples fail to hybridize, consistent with it being a very strong hairpin with uh, you know a dozen uh, G, C, and A base pairs. Another thing you could draw from this detailed model of, of the array, here you have 60 different oligonucleotides along the gene and interge- adjacent intergenic regions. The question is, where does the, where does the RNA transcription stop? Well, if you look, if you look um, in the places w- where the DNA control is high, you'll find the RNA is high going from right to left, the RNA tracks the DNA. The red and blue tracks the black until you get to position minus 33, and there the red and blue drop to baseline, and the black stays uh, going up and down at a higher level. And that is that happens to coincide with the known transcriptional start. So that would be another way of mapping the transcriptional start. You'll notice that some of the of the uh, High intensities drop below zero. This is just an artifact of having the perfect match minus the mismatch. If it happens to be the case that your mismatch control is uh, cross-reacting with some other DNA, say repetitive DNA in the genome or RNA, then it then it can it can get actually more intense than the perfect match, and so you can get a negative value. But otherwise, the negative intensity would be meaningless. Now. In principle, you can, pr- you can go through the whole human genome and you can predict where all the exons are, where all the splice junctions are, and in principle, even all the alternative splicing. In practice, it's not that easy. And uh, you're gonna be u- you can use all the hidden Markov models and so forth that we've been developing. You can do uh, multi-sequence alignments to get these motifs here for, you know, two bits is a full scale. And you can find donors and acceptors in this kind of pattern, GT donor, AG acceptor. But when you come right down to it, you want to have some way of uh, going through this empirically as well. And so what, so what you can do is you can basically ignore the, the, or look sort of independently, do a tiling of the genome with oligonucleotides, as was done here um, by Shoemaker et al. And this was, I think, one of the nicer papers that came out in the, the uh, uh nature issue on the human genome draft sequence. Here they, as the sequence was coming out, chromosome 22 was one of the first chromosomes nearly completed. Um, if you, at the top of uh, slide 47, you see the, how the metaphase chromosome is, is banded and labeled. If you take a little 113 kilobase chunk of that, the next line down, then you blow that up further and all the way down to the ligonucleotide, 60 MERS, tiled every 10 base pairs as a starting point, all the way along this uh, 100 kilobase chunk of chromosome 22. Then you hybridize it with RNAs from a variety of different human tissues. And you ask, uh, in the vertical axis, what is the log of the normalized signal intensity for these various RNAs? And you'll get a little histogram here, where purple spike means there's a lot of hybridization under at least some of the conditions. And then there'll be a a zone where there's almost no hybridization, and that's because those introns that we had, that we showed in the previous slide, are uh, spliced out, and they're in low abundance. They're spliced out in the nucleus before the the RNAs accumulate, so they tend to be in low abundance, and they're not found in the mature messenger RNA. And so when you label these up, you're selectively labeling the exons in the cDNA. And you can see these. They, they coincide well with the little green exons in the annotation, except every now and then you'll find uh, something. Here's a case for exon 3, where the green uh, annotation in the uh, original sequence is too short. And here's a blow up near the bottom, um, where the purple region clearly extends beyond the green annotation in, the, in the, that came from sequence uh, algorithm, sequence analysis algorithm, where 102 base pairs should be extended to 5 prime to that exon make it a slightly larger exon, and, uh, but when you extend it by that, you ask, well, does it still have the splice site, or does it have a new splice site that we can recognize? And sure enough, it does. It has an AG um, and a fairly good match to the motif we had in the previous slide. So this is a way where you, and you can see it that the, the purple intensity drops close to zero here as soon as you get out of the exon uh, as now properly defined. So this is a way of, of including additional se- uh, data in addition to the sequence by, um, by tiling and by quantitative hybridization. Now, the last topic today is time series. This connects the quantitative data that we're collecting it, where you're not just collecting an isolated condition and ask and comparing it to some other condition. You're actually, uh, there, it actually matters the order of the different conditions that you have. And this is a great advantage in, in analyzing causality, and we'll illustrate it in the context of messenger RNA decay. Now, in order to, to uh, and, and finally, in, in ways of aligning different time series data. Now, why do we want time courses? If we do a gene knockout or do a gene deletion, by the time you, uh, you know, isolate that mutant and characterize and do the RNA, you've, you've now gotten not just the primary effects, but all the downstream effects of that uh, knockout. So the best would be to have some kind of conditional control over the trans- transcription so that when you first either turn it on or turn it off, that the first events that occur are likely to be uh, primary events. Now, the way that you control that needs to be not have too many perturbing forces, uh, on the whole system. So uh, temperature shift is very—it's an easy class of mutation to get, but it is, it's not suitable uh, because there's a huge temperature effect on the entire system. Chemical knockouts can be more specific, um, but you need to be, you need to prove that. An example of a fairly time-honored uh, uh, chemical knockout is rifampicin, which affects, spe- fairly specifically affects just the uh, RNA polymerase. And so uh, this is an interesting case uh, where the, um, the effect is to, to stop initiation of tr- transcription. And so then as we do our time series, what we see is the r- RNAs uh, for LTP, which we showed in a, a few slides ago, is very stable. It basically lasts longer than the lifetime, uh, the, the doubling time of the cell. Uh, Possibly many cell generations. And other uh, RNAs, such as CSPE, have extremely short half lives in the order of two and a half minutes. And uh, you can compare various methods for quantitation, and you come up with uh, uh, different half lives here. Um, Okay. So that's an example of a very significant class of of, uh, chemically uh, (laughs) manipulated knockouts. So you can precisely phase them, you have very few other consequences, uh, and then you can measure a time series. It would be nice to be able to do that for any particular RNA and see what the downstream consequences are. Now whenever you do a perturbation where you have two time series, you want to know uh, uh, how all the RNAs uh, occurred during uh, heat shock or some other uh, pulse of some chemical, relative to the pulse of a different chemical or the time series as it would have occurred without any, you can see how it, this, they won't necessarily line up point by point. You can't just start them at time zero and expect them all to line up. In fact, you can't even expect them necessarily to line up where you have a uniform stretch. You might have to have piecewise stretch where certain parts go faster than others. Now, this may hopefully click in your mind a connection to the dynamic programming where we had two sequences of bases or amino you know, acids, and you wanted to expand or contract different sections of those by inserting uh, a, uh, a, a, a placeholder. Well, it doesn't make quite as much sense here with a time series to insert a placeholder. So, so you, you can do that. You can have a discrete uh, block diagram just this here series A and B in the uh, middle upper diagram um, or even or you can have a more continuous function where, You've tried to uh, more smoothly warp. Both of these are dynamic programming algorithms. The smooth warping is slightly more, a little more complicated. The the insertion deletion one is exactly the same three conditions that we went through for pairwise alignments and dynamic programming. But this is this is partly to drive home the the uh, how many different ways you can use dynamic programming we use it in HMMs, we've used it on uh, multiple sequence alignment, and now for time series in gene expression. And you can see here's, you know, from the literature on cell cycle, almost all of the data time series that we have so far actually don't align perfectly point by point because we use wildly physiologically different uh, conditions to, to get cells to synchronize, say, for cell division, or to, to start an event here using a, a mating pheromone, a small peptide that's released into the media that kind of c- controls the cell cycle and allows you to arrest and then release from arrest. Or a temperature-sensitive mutant, even though I'm malign temperature-sensitive just a moment, it is one of the most precise ways of getting synchrony of cell division. Uh, cell division is a particularly good illustrative uh, notion, partly because we have mentioned it earlier in the course, but also if you think of any dividing set of cells, many of the cell types that you'd be interested in are dividing stem cells, uh, microbial cells, um, and yeah, so on. That automatically is a mixed mixture of cells. If you mush them up and extract RNA, you're kidding yourself and thinking this. that was a homogeneous population. If, you, if on the other hand you um, synchronize the cells, then you've removed one major variable that could confound, th- th- now they are much more homogeneous uh, cells that are in the same state in the cell cycle can be uh, synchronously isolated as a population. There may be other sources of heterogeneity, but you've eliminated a big one. In any case, you take these two data series, they have different time constants, different lengths, and even different warps. Now you want to take the, the X's and superimpose them on the O's, and here's an example of that now. They're both put together, and it's and even though there may be little deviations for any particular gene, when you talk about the thousands of different genes, very rich pattern, lots of information, plenty of uh, opportunity for, s- for smoothing out uh, individual variations. But here you get superimposed patterns, and here's the trace back that tells you exactly where the insertions and deletions uh, or, s- or smooth warping might occur to align these two different cell cycles data sets. So In summary, we've connected the multi sequence alignments from last class to uh, allow you to to model RNA structure. Our RNA structure helps you model an interesting class of of RNA guide sequences involved in methylation uh, as an illustration of finding genes that don't encode proteins. Then we talked about various quantitation methods, errors that creep in, and solutions to those errors. Statistical methods for asking whether two distributions are related or or have have no difference in their means. Um, Interpretation errors about where RNAs start and stop, how you get alternative splicing. And finally, time series data, which we will find uh, very useful for for connecting RNA and protein measures uh, over time series for analyzing uh, causality and uh, systems Okay. Thank you very much. See you next time. Be sure to get your problem sets into your teaching fellows.